We'll go to Matthew 24 now. And I want to read to you verses 1 through 14. We're beginning a new series. And the series is a study of the Olivet Discourse, which was the last message that the Lord Jesus declared or preached over Jerusalem, sitting on the Mount of Olives, speaking to those things that are ahead and the prophesying over the city of Jerusalem. It's a very important section of scripture. It'll take us a while to go through it, but we'll start this morning. And so I recommend, by the way, that you take some time and you read Matthew chapter 24 and 25, and I'll actually send to you some other references so that you can look at the parallel passages of the Olivet Discourse that are found in the Gospel of Luke and in the Gospel of Mark so that you can look at those as well. And you can be reading over those and mulling over that and considering that as we begin this short, brief series. So let me read to you. Matthew 24, verses 1 through 14. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to him to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of sorrows. Then they'll deliver you up to the tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. And then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Well, verse 1 records a rather ironic moment. The disciples are pointing out to the Lord Jesus the wonders of the temple complex. That temple was in the process of being constructed. It had been under construction for over 50 years. It will actually be under construction for another 34 years before it's completed. It is a marvel. It is wondrous. And as they're leaving the temple, they're caught up with the beauty and the glory and the majesty of these great buildings that are being built in the temple complex, and they begin to, in a sense, guide Jesus around and show him all of these great things in these grand edifices. And the ironic part about it is that the construction of this temple is only meant to foreshadow the one whom they're showing and revealing it to. The Lord Jesus is the fulfillment and the epitome of all that the temple represented and all that the temple projected. In fact, the Lord Jesus said of himself that he was one who was greater than the temple. And so they are with the one who is greater than the temple complex, and yet at this very moment, they're they're more distracted by the greatness of the temple, and they're pointing out to the one who is greater than all. And added to this irony is what happens in Matthew 23. In Matthew 23, the Lord Jesus is in the temple grounds, and there in the temple grounds, the Lord Jesus unloads a series of curses upon the leaders of the nation of Israel. And basically, his curses amount to this. They are going to be judged because they have failed to recognize their Messiah. 
They have failed to honor their Messiah. And not only that, they are going to be judged, but because they've also failed to lead the nation of Israel in recognizing him and honoring him, the nation of Israel is going to be judged as well. And so the Lord Jesus finishes his words with a lament over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He says that the city that he would have longed to have gathered as a hen would gather his chicks under his wings, but they would not. And now he said they won't see him again until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in the meantime... He says, you are going to be laid desolate. Jerusalem is going to be laid desolate. The temple grounds are going to be laid desolate. And it's a stern pronouncement and a, and a stern lament. And following this stern pronouncement of judgment and this stern lament, the disciples shake it off rather quickly. And as they're leaving, they say, oh, look, look at the beautiful buildings, Jesus. And they're showing Jesus all of these wonders and marvels of the building. And basically what Jesus was saying was, listen, I'm going to bring judgment upon this nation and upon these leaders, not because they failed to honor and recognize the greatness of the temple, but because they failed to honor and recognize the greatness of myself as the Messiah. That's the irony of what's taking place here. And so they take the Lord Jesus around, and they show him with childlike enthusiasm the construction around him. And if the Lord Jesus, to some extent, went along with their child, it seems that they did for some sense, because you get the idea that there's been a, a bit of a survey, a bit of a guide that they've taken him on in the language that's there. And the Lord Jesus goes along with them and lets the little children show all, the, all these wonderful things. But at some point in time, if he allows them their childlike enthusiasm, he does so only for a short while. Then he speaks to them clearly what men need to hear, clear truth. And he says this to them, do you see all these buildings? Not one stone is going to be remaining upon the other, but all of them are going to be thrown down. This is incredibly shocking news to these disciples. After they've just finished giving this wonderful guided tour of the beautiful nature and the glory of this complex that's being constructed, be told that the temple is going to be completely destroyed. In their minds, the destruction of the temple means the end of the world as they know it. Literally, what it says is it means the end of the age. By the way, the rabbinics of that day taught that there were two age periods. There was the age of the law and the current age in which they were in. That age was going to come to an end. And then there was going to be the age of the Messiah coming and reigning and ruling upon the earth, bringing judgment to the world and then reigning forever. And so the disciples gather these two things together. If this temple is going to be destroyed, then it means the next age is about ready to dawn, about ready to come. And they gather and put together these two things And they think of him in that way. And so they entwine together these ideas, the destruction of the temple and the onset or beginning of the messianic age, and they're intertwined in the questions that they ask. When will this temple be destroyed, they ask. What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Now this has been roiling through their minds, this shocking news that the Lord Jesus said to them, and they're silent for a period of time, but they can't resist in asking this question. So it's a little after this when they're on the Mount of Olives sitting there surveying and looking over the temple mount that they ask these questions they reason if the temple is going to be destroyed this must be the time when jesus will present himself in power to conclude the present age and begin the age of the messianic reign when is your coming when are you coming in this fashion in this way presenting yourself and the what that they ask here can be understood as a how in other words the when and the how of this age. Basically, they're saying, when and how will this temple be destroyed? And when and how shall this messianic age begin? That's what they're asking. That seems to be the question that's on their mind. Again, the disciples thought the destruction of the temple would mean the end of the world and that it would immediately issue in the appearing of the Messiah in judgment and power to set up a new rule in the place 
of utter defeat or the casting down of all worldly powers. And now, what we know at this point in time is the temple will not be destroyed until 40 years after this statement by the Lord Jesus. Only six years after it's completed is the temple completely destroyed. It's destroyed by a Roman general by the name of Titus after he seized Jerusalem and he utterly destroys the temple. In fact, we understand at that time that there were almost a million Jews that were in Jerusalem at that time and the vast majority of them, about 80% of them according to Josephus, were killed and put to death at this time by Titus as he destroys the temple. A great slaughter and a great destruction of the temple that took place at that time. But that's 40 years from then. And what we know is that there is a significant gap between that moment of the destruction of the temple and the moment when Jesus Christ returns to bring an end to the world age. We know that because he's yet to come a second time. And we're in that interim period of time. And so the disciples were wrong to, in a sense, precisely connect these as chronologically coinciding events, but they were only partly wrong. Can I say that? There was something in their thinking that was right or correct. They were right in connecting the destruction of the temple with the end of the age and the coming of the Messiah in judgment. Let me explain this just briefly. And There's a little bit of background we have to do to set this up. We're going to begin a series, and there's just little bits of footnotes or information you need to put in your mind as you're reading these scriptures. Let's think of the temple for a moment. The existence of the temple, the temple as it stood and as it was before them, it represented something. It was a type of something. The existence of the temple was a type revealing the saving mission of the Messiah coming as a servant to rescue people from their sins. The temple as it existed revealed that the Messiah was to come first as a servant to be a sacrifice for the sins of the people. All of the different offerings made up and put on the altar and for sacrifice in the temple, all were projecting and pointing themselves typically to the final sacrifice of Jesus Christ coming as the Lamb of God who dies for the sins of the world. The temple rituals with the priestly ministrations of them and the priests taking these offerings and these sacrifices and presenting them up in the Holy of Holies before God again is a representation or a type of the priestly ministry that the Lord Jesus carries forward and fulfills in himself. He's our great high priest. He's ascended into heaven. He takes the sacrifice he's made on our behalf and he presents it before God the Father, seeking our cleansing and our forgiveness. It reveals the way of salvation for all individuals and it comes through the fulfillment of Jesus Christ, answering everything that's reflected in the temple. The temple also was a type or a revelation of how it was that God could make his presence among men. God being present and with the people and The Lord Jesus is right now before the disciples. And the Lord Jesus is God in the flesh, is present before them. He's with them at that moment. And the day will come when, as they believe and trust in him, that he will pour his spirit upon them and their very bodies will be temples of his presence living within them. And when all these things are fulfilled, everything that the temple existence typified, all of them are fulfilled, there's not a necessity for the temple anymore. Because what it's pointing to and what it's representing and what it's typifying is common. It's been completed, and it's completed in Jesus Christ. So, the existence of the temple is akin to or connected to the first appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ to save. In the same way, as the existence of the temple was a type of Jesus' first coming, the destruction of the temple is a type of his second coming. It's a type of God's judgment, not only on Israel, but on all the nation. 
the destruction of the temple and the great destruction that takes place and the catastrophic destruction that so overwhelms the Jews that they've never seen anything like it. And seriously, the Jewish race is still reverberating with the trauma of that moment in that time. More significant and more great than what we consider to be the Holocaust for the Jews was the day in which they lost the promised land, in which their temple was destroyed, in which they were driven out, and they're not offering sacrifices still to this day. They've lost their priesthood, and they've lost their temple, and they've lost their sacrifices. It was a great and traumatic event, and an expression of God's great judgment upon them. In the same way that that event is an expression, was a moment of great and profound judgment, it typifies the judgment that will come and take place at the end of the age before the establishment of the messianic rule over all the world. So as Jesus answers their questions, he leaves intertwined through this message to some extent their thoughts. He doesn't disconnect it all. He allows a connection to be made between the destruction of the temple and the end of the age. He allows them to think of it as a marker for the introduction of the age that's to come. It is a type. It's a type that will come in its fullness one day when the Messiah comes to reign upon the earth. And so he doesn't disentangle them entirely. And this is confusing for individuals because when they read the Olivet Discourse, they don't know when they're reading about the destruction of the temple and when Jesus is simply prophesying about that and when the Lord Jesus is prophesying about the great judgment and the final judgment that comes before and during the midst of the great tribulation at the end of the age. And I think it's intentionally that way. The Lord Jesus allows these things to be intertwined. Their questions were, when shall the temple be destroyed and what shall be the sign of your coming to bring about the end of the age? They put these two concerns together and hold them tight together and the Lord Jesus answers these two questions together. As he answers them and as we study this passage, we'll begin to see beyond the destruction of the temple that they are not linked as tightly by time as the disciples thought at that moment. But there is a link. At the same time, maybe not on this day, but eventually the disciples themselves will realize that they're not entirely connected, and they will begin to disentangle them as well. But for now, what we want to do is look at this passage and begin to draw lessons for ourselves. And here's where we need to begin, looking at these first 14 verses of Matthew 24. We want to note that what the Lord Jesus is describing in these first 14 verses is the conditions that will mark the period of time between his first coming and his second coming. He doesn't directly go to answer the question. In other words, he doesn't speak directly to the destruction of the temple initially. He doesn't speak directly to the final return of the Lord Jesus to bring to the end of this current age and to set up his messianic kingdom. But he speaks of the age in which they will carry out their ministry and they will fulfill his directions and commands from them. He speaks to the age. This is very relevant for us because he's going to speak about the time in which They are about ready to move into, with his ascension, this will begin, before his second return, and it's the age that we're in right now. We can call it the church age. This time period between the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ and the second return of Jesus Christ. And these first 14 verses describe to us that age that we're in right now. So with your Bibles before you, and I hope you do have them before you, we'll keep our fingers here and look at these first 14 verses And we're going to make a series of observations. And by the way, as you look at this, it's not a pretty picture of what the age is like. It can be rather discouraging and distressing and disappointing. And we're not to read this as something that's just mounting up and just happening in the last days. Although, in a sense, we might see history all projected, moving on a linear line towards fulfillment. But through that projection, there is 
a cycle going on of ever intensifying fulfillment of what Christ is talking about, and we might be able to see some of that. In other words, we should be able to see these things all throughout this historical period, but we also might be able to see that they seem to be getting worse and worse. Those conditions seem to be intensifying. But this is the period of the church, the age in which we now reside in, an age that began with the ascension of Jesus Christ and is going to continue until the return of Jesus Christ the second time. And here's the first thing that I want us to see in this passage, the first application or idea that we should have here, and it's this. First, do not have too high an expectation for the outcomes of the church age. Do not have too high an expectation for the outcomes of the church age. We are not to be expecting that peace and prosperity and the overall program of the Savior will come upon the earth at any time before Jesus returns physically to reign upon the earth. We're not going to expect for the nations to beat their swords into plowshare. We're not to expect that there's going to come this rising tide until there's this day in which the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth like the waters of the sea. None of that is going to be fulfilled until Christ puts his foot upon this earth and sets up his earthly reign upon this earth. The Lord Jesus is describing what we should expect to see in the progress of the age that we're in, and it's the waxing worse and worse and worse of these degenerative expressions of evil and sin and darkness. There's a bleakness about it. In this age, we're not to be confident or overconfident. Somehow, we are going to bring about by our own efforts and our own actions and by the shining of our ministry and our message to the world some brighter, more glorious age before Christ returns. We can be confident that God is in control. He sees exactly what's happening. He sees exactly the trajectory of human history. He knows all that's taking place. He's in control. He's sovereign over all these things. And so we can trust him. And we can believe that God is true and that God's truth will prevail. But there should not be any kind of peptic optimism in the trajectory of human history towards some ever-progressing goal of a golden era of peace and blessing. These words of the Lord Jesus should convince us that the church will not, in the end, introduce a swelling and unstoppable tide of good in the world that shall push human society ever higher until it climaxes in the final age of the Messiah. No. Things are going to go along in a degenerate fashion. There may be moments in time in which there will be advances in mankind. There may be times in which society is blessed and benefited by the witness and the light and the power and the salt and the preserving influence of the church. There are times when the decay will be driven back, but ultimately sin will still run its course of decay through the ages and through every period of time until the Lord Jesus returns. So don't put your trust in the advancing of human civilization. It will not advance beyond the power of sin to unleash throughout the epochs of time great floods of corruption and destruction upon the earth. And the Lord Jesus is describing this here. Here's some applications for you. In times of prosperity, in the pauses in which we may see significant measures of peace and harmony and prosperity, we should get active to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. When there are pauses, when there are moments in the destructive influences, when we see a moment in which there are opportunities to shine the light into the darkness of our world, we should shine it. These moments are not going to last. The opportunities to share the gospel without resistance and without persecution that we've experienced in America for some time is not going to endure, not if we read our Bibles. 
So we must be vigilant and we must be diligent to take advantage of the moments that God gives us. The age will be typified by the accumulating devastation of sin and injustice until the Lord Jesus returns. But in those moments, take advantage of them. Seize the opportunities. Here's another application. I hope you don't misunderstand me here. Don't give yourself too fully to the causes of human society. I'm not saying that we should not be involved. God gives us talents. God gives us blessings. God gives us a role and a responsibility to be a light in our world of his nature and of his justice and of his truth. And that will impact not only a spiritual message, but that has physical ramifications and that has ramifications in society. And we are to be salt in this world. And that has ramifications in the way that we present ourselves and live our lives in their society. And God has invested in us this talents of his truth. And we're to spend those talents in such a way that we benefit the communities that we live in. We're to pray for our nations. We're to pray for peace We're prepared for opportunities to serve the Lord Jesus in these places. We're to bring to bear the truth of what Christ has done for us and the truth of his word on the societies in which we live and see them shaped and molded in a way that they begin to learn from those truths and begin to pattern themselves after those truths. And we've been given that role to play and by God's grace and because God is so gracious and kind, he allows these things to have their influence on our nation and on our world. But I'm just saying, don't give yourself too fully to these causes. We have a role to play, and we may be influences for good in our day and age. But above all, set your hopes and rest your future in the changeless promises and goodness of God, not in the progressing of society, not in your power to impact things for good and to get positive outcomes, but even as you do these things, wait for the coming of the Messiah to again come and rule with righteousness upon the earth. In the meantime, live in obedience to his call to make him known and to live out his life before others. And yes, You'll have impact there. But your impact will be not in hoping in your impact. Not in hoping and trusting in what you're going to be able to accomplish and bring to the world, but what ultimately he will bring to the world. It'll keep you from becoming disillusioned when at times things turn and twist the other direction. When the great moments of light and the great moments of truth that dawn upon society are repealed and we find ourselves being pressed back into darkness It'll keep you from being disillusioned. You were only honoring him. You were only giving light in the age in which you lived. You were only being obedient to him, but he's the God over the ages, and he's told us what to expect. Here's a second thing to note. This is somewhat the heart of our message here this morning. Take note that the patterns of decay that our age will go through call for endurance. Take note that the patterns of decay that will mark our age will call for endurance. Lord Jesus is letting his followers brace themselves in a sense. Their mission will go against the current of the age in which they live from beginning to end. He's basically, get ready for the long haul here. You're going to have to be faithful to the end. Here are the things that he says. There are a number of things that he said. First, he tells them that there are going to be false messiahs, that there will be many false messiahs that will arise. And false messiahs arise from two different sectors in society. One sector is from the sector of religion and from the spiritual hopes and aspirations of people. The other place where false messiahs rise, where we fail to recognize them, but they're just as real and maybe even more predominant in our land, is from the sector of politics and from social hopes and aspirations. The story of the Antichrist that you read about in the book of Revelation is a convergence of these two things. He's a religious head and he's a political head. And well, it's just drawing together the two places where people pin and place their hopes. 
Individuals come for people who are longing for spiritual answers to the need and they take whatever their longings are, their hopes are, and their desires are and they wrap it around themselves and they say, I'm the embodiment and the answer for these things and they're false messiahs and they're false teachers and people have longing for peace in the earth and harmony in their societies and some false messiah rises up and says, I'm the one who will deliver these things and you trust and believe in me and I'll bring all that and they make themselves these political false messiahs and both of them will proliferate, Jesus says, to the ages. They'll proliferate through the ages. We need to recognize in the heat of the political passions of our day and age that they should reveal to us that politics is religion as well. It's a political religion. We need to be careful not to clamor after the political false prophets and messiahs of our age. They are every bit a fulfillment of Christ's prophecy that false prophets and false messiahs will rise in religion, but also in politics, and they will mark the age of the church. Here's another thing he says. Wars and rumors of wars will be many. And then after he says this, he says, all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. In other words, these are not signs of the end. They're just the expected course of the age. Pick up your history books and begin reading them. The ages are marked by the wars that have moved across the land over and over and over again, and they're going to continue to move and rage across the land. Because men will war and battle with one another because they want and they desire and they don't have. Their coveting and their desire for power and possession and control will drive them into ongoing wars. It says here, famines, pestilence, earthquakes will also be notable and they'll be frequent. And then he says this, all these are just the beginning of sorrows. Again, these are not signs of the end upon us. They're just the beginning of the ongoing sorrows that we know we'll experience and will go and take place throughout the time period that we're in. So, if you have somebody who's trying to tell you that Jesus would come at any moment because we're having an uptick in earthquakes, that's not necessarily a sign. It's just the beginning of the sign. It's just the stuff that's going to ingest the way that the, the earth is in a cataclysmic turmoil, longing for its Redeemer to come. And the shaking out of all these things is the expression of the fallenness and brokenness of the world in which we live in. And the Lord Jesus says you're just to expect these things to take place. To these things, he adds, there's going to be persecution and there's going to be martyrdom. The church age has been marked throughout by persecution and martyrdom. Our experience of peace and freedom of worship in America is an anomaly in the history of this age. It's not the norm. We read of the persecution of the church in different places around the world. There are magazines that you can read about. You can find books and you can read about it. You can pick up an old book like Fox's Book of Martyrs and read about these things. And you marvel that these things took place. They seem startling and they seem strange to you. But that only reveals how blessed we've been in our land. Because this has been the common experience of the vast majority of the faithful throughout the ages. And the believer throughout this age. Is the experience of persecution. Experience of tribulation. Experiences of martyrdom. So we should be thankful for how blessed we are, but we shouldn't be surprised if things change. I've got a question here for you. A society needs something in order to persecute individuals within their midst. What does a society need in order to persecute individuals in their midst? What would a society need in order to begin persecuting, for example, the Christian population among them? Here's an answer for you. They need to feel that they have the moral high ground. They need to feel that they have the moral high ground. They must determine that the Christian is a threat to the cohesiveness of the social fabric. 
and that they're justified in persecuting them. Now, the odd changes that we're seeing in which the moral traditions and the Judeo-Christian values that have shaped our land are being turned upside down may just be paving the way for such a thing as that. Just establishing the moral grounds through which persecution will rise up. I have traveled a lot around the world and it has been my thought at times when I'm traveling into some of these places. You know, when you're traveling into Indonesia. This last week we had a ministry in the Embong province of Indonesia and it is the most radically committed Muslim part of Indonesia. And there are churches there and they experience profound persecution. We're carrying a ministry with a cluster of those churches. Well, I've gone to places like that Sometimes I wonder to myself, I wonder if I will be martyred for my faith in these places. There was a time when I was concerned that I would be martyred for being an American in those places. So I would wear a Canadian lapel pin. I lived in Canada, so I would have a little maple leaf on my thing. I thought maybe that might guard me from that. I don't walk around with an American flag, you know, when I go to some of these places. Just being a little wise. I love my country. I love my country. But I don't want to die as a martyr to America. I want to die as a martyr to Jesus Christ and the gospel. If that's how I have to go in martyrdom. I want to go as somebody who's recognized as a follower of Jesus Christ and it's his name that I'm bearing upon myself. Oh, I've wondered that. I've wondered if that might take place. Of late, I've wondered if I live long enough, it might not just happen here in my own country, in my own land. When you see the things that are shifting around us, I'm not being alarming here. I'm not trying to stir up some sense of conspiracy or anything like that. The Lord Jesus said, these are the things that will mark the ages in which we live now. We ought to be thank the Lord and, and bless the Lord that we've lived in this oasis of peace in this land. And we should still take advantage of that to advance the gospel with boldness. Because this is an envelope in time. And it's a brief envelope in time. And it's a brief envelope of grace in the midst of what the Lord Jesus is describing when we mark the age, the church age in which we live. Here's another thing that he says. Apostasy, betrayal, Hatred of false brethren, false prophets, he says, will also abound. He says here in verse 10, And then shall many be offended. That word there, if you might remember, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are not offended in me. He's talking about those individuals who profess some faith and some belief in him, but now they're scandalized. They're scandalized by the fact that they're going through all these difficulties and all these hardships and that there's all this affliction taking place. And then it says they'll betray one another and they'll hate one another and... So he's describing apostasy, people turning away from the faith, people in their apostasy actually betraying those who they shared or once professed the faith with, and a hatred of false brethren, and the hatred of false brethren that will rise up, and then false prophets that will also rise up. Again, if you take the on-again, off-again believer, if you take the unregenerate person who's a professor in Christianity, but they've really not been changed and transformed by the Holy Spirit, and you expose them to trials and tribulations and persecutions, or you just subject them to being unfashionable and to the accusation of being out of touch with the times and being somehow against the social movement of the age, they will begin to inch further and further away from the thing and the faith that they once professed. They will even eventually depart from the faith. They will even turn against the faithful who don't depart from the faith. And that's the way it's been since the early church. You can read about it even in reading through the New Testament of individuals like that. John wrote, they went out from us because they were not a part of us, because if they were a part of us, they would have not have gone out from us. Paul speaks of being persecuted by the so-called brethren. So it will continue, and it will peak with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ.
Here's another thing. He says there will be lawlessness and there will be lovelessness that takes place. And this is not to be unexpected. Laws, you see, are for lovers. The root of enduring lawfulness is love. You love something, you follow its rules. You love a nation, you follow the rules of the nation. You love a person, you find out what they desire, what delights them, what pleases them, and that becomes their desire, their delights, their pleasures become your law. You know, in Ephesians chapter 5, we read the command that women are to obey or submit to their husbands, and then right after that we read that men are to love their wives, and these two commands are both coming at the same thing. If a woman loves her husband, she'll submit her life to his good pleasure. She'll obey him. If a man loves his wife, he does precisely the same thing. He finds a thing that delights and pleases his wife, and it becomes an inner law for him. And he lives according to it to please her and to honor her and to bless her. And it's just a loving thing that leads to following the laws of that individual in just the same way. When you love something, you follow the laws of that thing. And so, inversely, if love leads to lawfulness, lovelessness leads to lawlessness. If you love the Lord Jesus, you'll obey Him and you'll follow Him. But if you let your love grow cold, you'll depart from Him and from His laws. And this lawless, loveless society will appear in greater and greater frequency throughout the age in which we live, as men become increasingly more and more lovers of themselves, lovers of their own pleasure, rather than lovers of God. And if you can't love God, you will be incapable of loving others. So it won't be a surprise. There will be an age marked by lawlessness. But still, in all these things, the end will not come. This is not a description of the time of the Great Tribulation. It's a description of our times and our age. And so the Lord Jesus gives a command to us or a word of encouragement or exhortation to us before all these things. He says, but to him who endures to the end, he shall be saved. Jesus is calling for a response to the challenge of the age in which we live in. We're to meet these things not with naive expectations that everything is going to get better and better, but with endurance to the very end. But in that endurance, what are we to be doing? Well, we're to be loving the Lord Jesus and we're to be keeping his command to us. And what is his command? What's to mark the church that endures in the midst of the age in which we live? Well, that's the third thing that we note here in this passage. You'll remember that the last command that the Lord Jesus gave to his disciples before he ascended into heaven, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. That was the command he gave them. And here at the very end of this description of the age, the Lord Jesus indicates that this command will be followed and carried out by those who endure. And so he says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. This doesn't mean that Jesus can't come at any time until every nation and every tribe has heard the gospel. What it means is that we are to be about our mission regardless of the challenges of the age, regardless of the resistance and regardless of the things that we must endure through, for this is the season that he's given us to preach the gospel in all the world. Jesus is letting his disciples know that they are going to carry on with their mission regardless of how the world is falling out around them. 
and that they are not to be stopped by any of the resistance that they meet. Now this is relevant because right after this, they're going to experience the Last Supper together. And then right after this, Jesus is going to be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then right after that, he's going to be crucified. He's telling them, listen, I'm going to give you a mission. And you're going to carry it out to declare my gospel and my message to the end of the age. Even when the nation seems to be turning around and history seems to be turning against you. You're to do these things. Only one thing will bring their mission and ours to the end. And it's not the resistance of this age. It's not all the things that we encounter that go against our hopes and our aspirations and our longings for this world. The only thing that will bring our mission to an end is Jesus Christ's return to earth to set up his kingdom. The concern that we should be most fixed upon is not the when and how of his return, but how much are we faithful to his final command. That's where he brings his disciples back to. There's work to be done here. You have these concerns, and I recognize it, and I'm going to share with you ideas, but here's the thing I want you to understand, and all of it. Here's what I want to be found in you. I want you to be found faithful to me. I want you to endure in the midst of these challenges, these resistance. I want you to give a positive expression of the gospel message until I return. The other thing we should see in the statement of the Lord Jesus at the end of all this is that he gives a positive promise to us in the midst of the distress of the age in which we live. Our mission to share the gospel to the ends of the earth will succeed. The suffering and enduring church will prevail in the midst of the darkness of the hour. Ours is not a lost cause. It's the prevailing cause. And Christ is behind it. And his sovereign determination is behind it. So these are the things that we take to ourselves. These are the things that give us great hope. We remember these things as we come before this table. This table which reveals the suffering of our Savior on our behalf. His blood that was shed for us. His body that was broken for us. The Lord Jesus calls his community together. His community that's been commissioned to take the message of his sacrifice to the ends of the earth. And he says, now I want you to eat this meal. And I will not eat it with you again until I eat it with you within the kingdom. And Paul says, we eat this meal and we proclaim the Lord's death until he come. We continue to proclaim the work and the left and the sacrifice and the gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ until he comes a second time. And this table reminds us that that is our mission. And this table also reminds us that we don't commune around just victory, although this is victory for us. We commune around the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. We commune around the suffering he took upon himself for our sake. And we willingly suffer with him We drink the cup that he drank on our behalf, suffering with him to bring this gospel to all the earth until he come. It marks us in the age that we're in. Next week, I want to talk to you about why this suffering age that we live in is conducive towards the proclamation of the gospel. It doesn't stop us. It doesn't resist us. It doesn't halt us. It enables us and empowers us. God sovereignly is working through all the contradictions of this age to actually impel a greater and greater witness of the gospel to the ends of the earth. I want to explain to you how that's possible. How it is that after Christ says all these things about this ever-corrupting influence that he comes with this triumphant end, but this gospel will be preached in all the earth. And then I'll come. It's a triumphant note. It is an expression of what our mission is and what our duty is. And we have to take it and seize it. We have to bow before it and accept it in faith and carry it out. But next week I want to share with you 
why that's the case. Why all these things mount up to give energy and power and life to the mission of the church. Not blessing and benefit and having a good time and having a faith that allows you to gain prosperity at every moment and think of all the good things and fly a nice plane and drive a nice car and have a house with golden gutters or whatever it is, you know, because that's what you've claimed by word. That's not what it will give us the hopeful fulfillment of our mission. Just the opposite. It's in the middle of all that darkness and all this difficulty and all this challenge that somehow it will induce a greater witness of the gospel. How's that take place? Jesus said it's going to. Jesus says it can. There's the hope. There's the, the grain that we hold on in faith. We say, oh, Jesus, then, instead of me fretting over the changes, instead of me fretting over these terrible things that are happening around us, oh, Jesus, there's hope here that I can be a, a light to you in this dark place. And that's my call, and that's my mission. And we remember that even as we partake of this meal. This meal is an expression of our willingness not only to find life in the suffering of Jesus Christ, but it's to fill up his sufferings in the age in which we live in order that we might be a witness to others before he comes again. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord, thank you for a start, a beginning point to consider our place in our day, in our age, in light of what you've done for us in the past, in light of what you're going to do for us in the future. Lord, may we live in that tension, in that moment, faithful to you, trusting in you, believing in you. Lord, let us spend less time with our fingers upon the pulse of our age and more time checking to see whether we are pulsating with a surrendered desire to be filled with your spirit, to be living under his power and under his life so that we may be glorious, brilliant lights of the faith and hope that is ours through Jesus Christ and the sacrifice. May we come before this table, not only acknowledging the sacrifice you made for us, Lord Jesus, but also remembering that you called us to take up our cross and follow you. To enter in with you, Lord, in this mission. This self-giving, sacrificing mission. To live for your honor and your glory in the age in which you've placed us until you return to establish the endless age of your reign upon this earth and in this place. We'll give you glory for that and we'll praise you in Jesus' name.